All right, everyone. Welcome to a very special edition of Bobby and Jens. We are here at the 40th annual El Tour of Tucson in front of a live studio audience, Jens. Um, I'm a little nervous. What about you? Yes, actually, me too. Um, I can feel my heart is a little quicker than usual. But I think we have a grateful audience, so I don't think they're going to boo too much at us. So we should be relaxed and just trust the people that they are friendly. You know, we've been, I've been here since Sunday, and it's uh, Friday today, and you got here on Wednesday. How has your experience here been so far? I mean, the, the ride is tomorrow, but we've had some amazing experiences already. Absolutely, and we are so blessed with the weather. We had just a little bit of rain yesterday night, which doesn't bother us, so just wash the roads clean for us. Um, no, perfect weather. I actually did work a little bit on my sun tank, so it's all good. My wife is going to be jealous when I come back home. Super friendly people, great group to ride with. You know, we ride really nicely, well along, not too fast, not too slow. It was basically pretty much perfect so far. It really has been. And um, we, we, we were part of the El Tour de Tucson Prologue Plus and Prologue Camps. Uh, some of us got here on Sunday. We got to ride the famous Mount Lemon on Monday. And then our buddy Greg over there uh, wanted to do it again on Wednesday. So guess what? Five of us went up and did it again. And it was absolutely amazing. Um, Jens, have you ridden Mount Lemon yet? Many, many years ago. Um, yep, I did once. And it's a very long climb, but it's very rewarding. Once you up there, you go, yeah, I did it. Yeah, we got to go up to the tippity top with myself and uh, Damon over there. We had a great time. But uh, why we're here is just to, I mean, we're, we're all bike fans, right? And we're a big, big, huge family. And um, I've spent a lot of time with this gentleman to my right. But today he did something that blew me away. At breakfast, I rolled down at 7 o'clock. You know, we had a nice uh, evening last night. And Jens comes out of the yoga room. I was roommates with this guy for forever, and I was always stretching. I was doing my core work, and he would just sit there and go, I should probably start to do that. And in <laughs> 15 years of being a roommate, I never saw him do it, and you decided to do it today in El Toro Tucson. Tell us a little bit about your yoga experience. It was actually pretty much um, awesome. I hardly ever felt so alive and awake, like gives you energy. I mean, uh, we had uh, Pam as our instructor, and I did only easy moves. I didn't want to hurt myself, but it was actually pretty much an eye-opening experience. I did a little bit of stretching, which I also haven't done in forever. To be perfectly honest, I'm just laid down flat on my back and we go, oh, that is the most stretching I have done for the last three years. <laughs> just lay down flat on my back and the person next to me went, that's not good. So I think I should make that a routine to do it at least three times a week. Yeah, I mean, uh, we were truly blessed, like you said, with the weather, with the company. Thank you all for being here again. It was an absolute blast. But um, we have a special edition today. We're going to have two guests. Um, we're pulling out all the stops. We're having a live studio audience. We're, having, we're filming this. Um, so our first guest, Mrs. Amy Charity. Amy, thank you so much for coming on Bobby and Jens today. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. So we, we know who you are. Everyone has an introduction to cycling story. Give us a little bit of background on your introduction to the beautiful world of cycling. Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, so cycling, has, um, it was a late start, and I straight from college went into sort of a corporate background. But cycling was always 
the way to meet people. So lived, I lived in Europe for a while and that was a way to um, meet everyone, get to know a location. And so I'd say the first 10 years of cycling for me were discovering new places, meeting people, but that was always the core group. So that was always the, the closest friends I had, my husband I met through cycling, basically jobs that I got in later years were all through cycling. So cycling essentially became how I connect with the world, but it didn't start out as a racing backward background. It was more of just a place to discover and, and meet people. So you did race quite a few years, like actively. Yes. At what age and how come that you actually took your first license? And at what age you actually raced your first race? Yeah. That, so um, I, I don't usually admit it, but I did triathlons prior to. So I was familiar with cycling and racing. And I didn't get serious about racing until my early 30s. So I had spent... Um, over a decade in corporate and I did a, I had a friend talk me into a hill climb in Colorado it was up lookout hill climb and I, I remember we drove through a blizzard in steamboat in May got over there to the other side and did this this race and it went really well I I ended up winning the hill climb and got a taste of what it feels like to be a bike racer and so from there it really took off i spent the rest of that summer uh just doing every race i could find in colorado kind of went up through the categories in racing and decided that i i would i would regret it if i didn't become a, a bike racer so um long story short ended up sending my cycling resume around and got a spot on at the time a domestic elite team and then ultimately on a uci team and left the corporate career and raced for for four years but it was 34 when i went pro so it was uh, i was definitely one of the older ones that something that was so fun about it is my teammates were anywhere from 18 to 30 most of them in their early 20s and I was the rookie, so I was the one who I didn't know anything. I was nervous on the start lines, like, and they were calming me. And so it was so interesting to be in that phase of my life and having had a, a very much a corporate background, but um, be the one who was probably the most terrified on the start line and having them kind of take comfort. That's the beauty of cycling is that age is kind of erased and you're all out there feel, suffering the same and discovering the same things. Well, you and I have something in common. We were both um, Colorado State road champions. I did it as a junior. You did it in 2013. And then you also won the team time trial at national championships in 2015 and then got to do the world championships in Richmond. Tell us a little bit about that experience. That must have been amazing being able to race the world championships. And These were some of the highlights. I think the team time trial, nationals was a big deal. Our team, I was on Optum at the time, and we started that year was just about training every single piece of how do you optimize. So we had our formation, like it eventually was the bullet formation with our littlest to our largest cyclist and how long do you take your pulls and what's your cadence. And it is such a science and it is you get to know your teammates every pedal stroke you we didn't speak in team time trial we were you can say left right up you never say steady or you're like kicked off the team like you're and you know who needs to take the longer pulls and so i just think 
there are very few times in my life I've ever been that in sync with a group of people and the, the women from Team Time Trial that we lived and breathed it. We went, our camps were about how do you optimize? How do you understand every, every piece of what we can all do? So you take that lead up from January into the actual race. And for us, we, we beat UHC, which was like our biggest competitor. And to, to have that happen, it was magical. I'd say in my life, that was one of the highlights of just knowing not only that we did it as a group, we did it as a team. And that, that feeling is, is one you just, you don't forget. And so racing in the world championships, there's, I, I was like the everything, like I've, I've, I've reached it. That is, it's, it's absolutely the ultimate to be up there and being national champions and, and racing and, and you go to worlds and there's in cycling, that's the ultimate. So I would say more than the Olympics, it's, it's absolutely the best of the best. So a huge honor and amazing to be with with different teammates and um, a handful of us are still very, very good friends and they become your family. So when you raced at, at the Worlds, was that maybe the moment where you thought, you know what, I could organize these things better? <laughs> or when did, when, when did it cross your mind, okay, what is my career after my cycling career? I go back to corporate life or how did that pass? got yeah. decided for you it's it is interesting i think all cyclists go especially if you've been at the elite level go through this of what's next and corporate didn't appeal i think there's something so much more tangible in the bike racing where you at least for me really felt like there's you can you can feel a bit more deeply um in your career than than i had in financial services um but it was really racing unbound actually and um that was post race retirement and i did the 200 and it was just like that feeling you get of suffering at that mm -hmm. level mm -hmm. and and just how like I, and you have the conversations and the stories afterwards, and those go on for months. And coming home from that in 2018, I realized we ride on gravel and dirt all the time in Steamboat, and it's it's you know it's incredible. And I was thinking like, why don't we have something like this here? And bumped into a friend, and he and I sat down at a restaurant for about 45 minutes, and. We basically planned it out. It's back of the napkin, but it was like, should we just make this a steamboat thing? We're like, let's go bigger, like, like appeal to Colorado. No, like let's appeal to an international audience. We can do this. And so I was just coming off of bike racing and had those contacts. And he had a lot from sort of the, the corporate industry. And so we put together a plan and I think we had we were lucky to be in steamboat which is magical for gravel racing the timing in 2018 to plan an event in 19 the gravel wave was just coming and then we had the right people to help us pull this off from the brand side of things and the athlete side so we get asked a lot by organizers like how did you have a sellout event right away and i think there were just all the pieces really came together at the beginning and so That is that's how we launched SBT Gravel, and it um, and there's just I'd say that even more compelling. We are so passionate about it. We we love it. Like it's I say it all the time when I'm working late at night. Like I'm not working. Like I'm just doing what's fun and I love. And it's genuine when I say that. And it's um, we get to create amazing experiences for people. And there's like what else can you do in your life where you get to do that? It's it just. It's the ultimate to be able to combine your 
backgrounds and passions and do this for, for a group of people, a large group at this point. Well, I got to experience it this year. Um, I was up there in 2022 uh, doing a an activation for, for a company that I work for, and I didn't get to ride the ride. So when my boss asked me if I wanted to go up there this year, I said, well, if I go up there, I, I need to ride the ride. And, you know, there's three distances, and I picked the 100 miler. There's 140, and then uh, 100. And then we, now we have 100K and a 40 miler. So now four, but yeah, the 100 miler is a, a great option. Yeah, yeah, and it was so much fun. I mean, like you said, um, there was a passion and a just a presence of what people were doing there. And it wasn't, okay, there were people there to compete, but there were also people there to participate. And I'm a Cat 6 gravel guy. I think Jens is pretty much Cat 6 as well. So we're new to this. We were roadies. Like back in the day when we ran into a dirt road, we would turn around. <laughs> you know, we're not riding on the dirt road. But now we're actually looking for dirt roads. We all have gravel bikes and, and I get it. But in order to just start something like that and have it grow so or, organically, what was that like secret sauce that that did come together? Because now you don't only have steamboat gravel, but you have the Finland gravel. And now tell us about your yeah. other um, yeah. branches of yeah. this whole I experience. think that's, that's part of, I'd say one of the best part of um, being involved in the event is how do you grow cycling? And what, to your point of how many people, we have our world tour racers that are there, but they make up a very small percentage. And so we're always thinking of how do you get more people into cycling? How do you grow? How do you make women, for example, feel comfortable cycling? Our first year when we opened up, we had 20% women. We're like, why? Like, this should be inclusive. This should feel like a place that women feel comfortable. Why is that the case? And so you go out and ask questions and then you open it up and invite people and you make an event that's more inclusive. And every year we've tried to expand that, whether it's through diversity, through size inclusivity, through locations is now kind of where we're heading, which is Europe, our thought was, is about where the U.S. was a few years ago in terms of accepting gravel. And Europe is deeply rooted in the history of Tour de France type cycling, which is, is very different than what you see and feel at an SBT gravel. And so how do you still appeal to that, that culture that's been around for hundreds of years and also open it up to something where you are going on dirt and people will be dressed very differently and you have all different abilities and how do you appeal to these two groups? And it's, it hasn't been done in cycling. It, it's been done in marathons. It's been done in other sports, triathlons, I would argue, but it's very rare to have a start line with the likes of you two and someone who's never done an event on a bike. And that's exactly what gravel does. So we thought, how do we take this to Europe? And this is going to be a big barrier. Um, but we chose Finland. And this was through um, Valtteri Botas is a Formula One racer. And he did SBT gravel. His girlfriend, Tiffany, who is a world tour pro, had raced um, SBT the first year in 2019, loved it, brought Valtteri back in 2021. And he was not many Americans knew who he was. He was sort of well, it, at our race. He was sort of, you know, in the, he was there in the background. Nobody was approaching him, but he really enjoyed it. And I talked to him for a few minutes and um, he said, he later said in a Velo News article, but also mentioned like someday I'd love to have a cycling event in Finland, his hometown. 
So I reached out to him and said, would you ever want to partner and put on an event in Finland? And he literally the next day was like, let's do this. And so we got on a Zoom and we just started talking about it. And he introduced us to the um, tourism board in his hometown and all of the connections. And the next thing you know, we are planning an event in Finland. And it was, it has a lot of similarities to Steamboat, which is great. It's a sporting town. That is their, what they are hoping to attract is an international sporting audience. And so it was a great fit. And, and Valtteri is an incredible business partner. He's really passionate about cycling. He loves it. He loves going to group rides. He loves doing the races. It is his outlet from racing Formula One. And so that, that was the start of all of this, and, and we had that race last year, Finland Gravel, and we'll do that again, hopefully indefinitely, certainly again this June. And so then Tiffany was like, someday let's do a race in my hometown. And so that was the natural progression is to have one in all three of our, our hometowns. So this year we're doing, it's called Rattle. Um, the background on that is it's in Adelaide, and the airport code is ADL. And so they call it Rattleade. So our event is Rattle, and it's going to be in Adelaide this year. And Tiffany is very similar to Valtteri, and she's a hometown hero, hometown legend, and she's connected us with Tour Down Under. And so they are absolutely embracing it and excited to have another element to a traditional world tour stage race is to have this gravel component that will appeal to both amateurs and pro racers. Will that overlap with the Tour Down Under or be kind of like the same weekend? Or it's completely it integrated. So oh. our, our we have a gravel corner at their expo in the village in Adelaide. We are we are during their events. So we're on a Friday and the men's and the queen stage is on Saturday. That's Wollonga Hill. We'll do a watch party there. So our gravel ride will go there and then watch the men's race. So we are fully integrated with them. Um, they are partners and sponsors of ours, and that's what I think is really going to help kind of show that you can blend these two audiences of that top racer. And then some of them, the women are done at that point, and so some of the World Tour women will join our, our event as well. I, I love that idea. I mean, when you told us that last night, I was actually surprised because there does seem to be, are you a gravel person or are you a road person? Are you a mountain biker? But like, Basically, we, we put on our cycling shoes one, one foot at a time, and we shouldn't, you know, judge one or, over another. And I, I truly believe that you need to do all these different disciplines because riding on the road, my wife is not the biggest fan of riding on the road, but I got her on a mountain bike, and I hope to get her on a gravel bike so that we can do these sort of things together. But that inclusivity and and being able to have those two events simultaneously is an amazing idea. It, yeah, and the, yeah, it really, it's, we're seeing more and more of different backgrounds. Now, some people are gravel racers, like they start on gravel, and that's, that's a rare thing for us. We're like, wow, this is becoming a thing. But and you look back in European, it's like, are you a tester? Are you roadie? Are you, like, those worlds don't cross necessarily. And so to have something where now it's mountain bikers and roadies and triathletes and all of the different backgrounds are doing these events and doing well. And, and sometimes you'll say like, oh, an SBT, like who's going to win this, a mountain biker or a, a gravel racer or a roadie? And now it's, it's becoming like any, anyone can win these, you know, it's just like those different skill sets. And we have different distances where, yeah, you, you take a, 
a 140 mile event, like that's going to be a very different person to win that than one of the shorter ones. So it's fun to see these different disciplines come together. So um, now that we know you got a Formula One pilot working for you, and <laughs> he would say working with me rather than UCI, for me, <laughs> um, you know, world class women's athlete uh, from that first meeting in that restaurant. How many people actually work for you full time? How big is your organization? And I'm probably going to ask the question to TJ in a minute again. Like, yep, yeah, close to the microphone. Um, Steamboat uh, Gravel finishes. You take the Monday off. And then when do you start working on next year's project? Six months before or basically Tuesday after your <laughs> event finishes? You'll be working on next year's event. Just, just to explain to our audience a little bit how much work actually goes into that. We were working on it Monday, like next year. Like it, it, it is a year-round um, operations. So we have six full-time SBT from accountants, operations, marketing, administrative, client services. Uh, and then we also have a, an entire production team that fly in 15 people and they, they work on it year-round as well. We have a PR team in the UK that is five people that work year-round on our events. So it is And I'm so curious to hear your answer because it's probably tenfold, but um, it, it is, it's enormous to think through the marketing. Right now, we've opened early registration for Steamboat, which is in August. We will be sold out on December 4th. The lottery is um, something that we select from. It's, and we have rattle in two months, and so we're sold out there, and we're in the final stages of, of putting together what that communication looks like and, and the branding. We're year-round with our sponsors, so they are, we have the different brands that are recognized, whether it's on a Black Friday deal or what's your activation at the next event. So it is, it is around the clock, and that's always my favorite question. People are like, what are you going to do the next nine months before you start planning SVT? And even with one event, it was, it was huge, and now as you're planning new ones, it's, it just continues to grow. And I think the other important piece of that is we can't, stay the same every year. So you have to innovate. You have to come up with new ideas. Our favorite thing is when Lifetime copies us. We're like, yes, we are this tiny little team and we're one step ahead with something that, that we're doing that people are looking to us. So there, and then there's, there's policies or different changes. Like there are things we need to think through in a world where culturally there's a lot that we need to consider. We know there long-term implications in decisions that we come up with. And so some of them are very simple, like arrow bars or something like that. And some are much more complex that are worldwide issues going on culturally. So those are things that we talk about all the time. We're not regulated. So there is no UCI or USA Cycling governing us and telling us like, this is what you need to do, or this is the rule. It's us, it's I'm, I'm sitting with my colleague like, What should the rule be? What makes sense? What's fair? What are the long-term repercussions of that? So there's, there's a lot that we need to think through year-round to make sure we get it right. And this is all new. Like, this hasn't been done in cycling. So it's, it's fun to be in front of that. What is the biggest little tweak that you've had to make since uh, the first edition in 2019 compared to, to this year? Because um, I understand that this year the women had their own kind of start time. Um, 
there was the hill climb, there was all these different things that obviously, yeah. but what was the biggest tweak that you had that, to make to keep it fresh and yeah, evolving? I think, I think, well, safety is something we always consider. So um, w one year we had our blue course and black course finishers coming in at the same time, and that made it really complicated. You know, if you have a Reggie Miller is finishing while Keegan is finishing, and you're like, ah, there's a lot going on here. So there's some of that safety element of really making sure that you have the timing right for everything. So that's been that's been a big one. We still do mass starts. Um, some of the other gravel events have changed, and we discuss it all the time. I personally love mass starts because I think it's, I would love to line up with you two, and I'd love for my mom to be to the left of us. Like, I think there's something incredibly compelling about that, and I love that part of racing. But I know it evolves, and I know that as we have money on the line, that that becomes more and more challenging. We've never done call-ups, so if you are Alexi Vermeulen, you probably need to get yourself to the front. We're not calling your name. You know to do that. Um, but there's also some other people that want to be up there with them. So we're always debating and discussing how do you keep it fair, how do you keep it safe, and those are we're still mass start, and we'll see and we'll evaluate, but it is something that's trending away from that. You mentioned the hill climb, and that's been another really critical piece for us. That we don't want our race to be so serious that it's not fun. And I think I've seen that in other gravel events that are just, you see people the day before, and it goes back to what I used to feel at a crit, which is like, oh, I'm terrified and I can't talk to anyone. And we never want our race to feel that way. We want it to, no matter who you are, we want you to be there having a good time. And so we did a costume hill climb the day before and you had, it was great. You, Phil Guyman came out and he trained for it and had rollers and he was in a skin suit. And then Pete Stetna was Wonder Woman. And like, it was, he, he commented on his YouTube video. Like I never thought I'd be like trying to make my way up on Stetna in a dress. So we had, we have to keep that element of this balance of serious, fun and fast and make sure that we're creating something that that people still get what they need out of our events. And so we're constantly thinking of things to to make sure that we there's an energy at SBT and anyone who's been there, I, I think they really feel it. And we want to make sure that's there. That comes from like what our team puts out, but it also comes from um, you know, what those fun events are that we are suggesting and promoting and that people join in on. Well, you have done a fantastic job there. Um, we wish you all the best of luck with all these new projects that you have. Uh, we may have to get the invite from Stuart O'Grady to head down to Tour Down Under and maybe check this out. What do you say, Enzi? Yep, I'm in. I love it. Apparently, I'm famous for signing us up for all these rides across the world with all our guests. Excellent. So I guess probably it's the right number 25 we need to do next year, right? Why not? Why not? Well, Amy, thank you so thank much you. for coming on, Honor Bobby to and be Jens. Here. Thank you very much. All right. Well, we'll be right back after this short break. Well, that was great talking with Amy, but um, we have the boss of the El Tour of Tucson, TJ Juskowitz. Uh, did I get that right? Yes, you got oh, it. All right, because you came up with a couple of different pronunciations <laughs> that really confused me. Um, TJ, we're, we're here because of what you've done, but you didn't just start here. Like this is the second or third year that you're executive third year. third year that you're executive director of the El Tour de Tucson but um, tell us your actual story where did you start this whole love and passion for putting on bike events well different than a lot of event directors I didn't have a cycling background I played basketball and football in high school and that, that was my thing I uh, grew up in South Florida 
went to school at the University of Florida and I went into event management, sport management at the time. There used to be like five or six people in the graduate program of sport management. Um, and I worked college athletics. I worked for the Gators and did football and basketball, stuff like that. And I met a guy there named Jimmy Carnes, who was the former Olympic track coach. And he had this thing called the Sunshine State Games. Like you've got state games program. It's an Olympic style sport uh, festival. They had 40 sports and one of the sports was cycling. And our event director is actually here. That was my cycling director, Ravi Rajkumar, who my, my uh, Gator buddy, uh, was our cycling event director 30 years ago. And that was my first introduction into the sport of cycling. And it was one of 40 sports. Eventually, that foundation put on this event called Bike Florida. And it was basically uh, three or four days across the, the state of Florida. And you, you know, you, you camp at night, that, that type of atmosphere. Um, so I took over that event, started with about 500 people. Within three years, we built that event up to 2,000 people. And it just, it took on a, uh, the mentality of cycling can be fun. It doesn't have to be a grind. It doesn't have to be like, you know, shut up legs. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to ride and have an ice cream and I'm going to have a beer and do whatever I want. And I'm going to smile. And so that mentality and at the end of your ride in Florida, you know, you're going to put your feet in the ocean and have, have a, you know, a, a daiquiri or something like that, or a margarita. So that mentality of the entire experience of cycling is more important. You know, it's not just about the bike. It's about this entire experience. So I started getting that reputation, like, hey, this guy knows what he's doing, uh, putting on a fun experience. And uh, I, I got to know the people that ran Ragbri by going to cycling conferences. And they invited me to come ride Ragbri, and I did it. And I rode across the state. I'm like, hey, this is really cool. And the guy's like, this, uh, one of my mentors, Jim Green, said, hey, you know what? I'm going to retire. Do you want to take over this event? And the conversation when I went back home, I'm living in, in Florida, and I say to my wife, Jody, I'm like, hey, we've got a great opportunity uh, for a job change. And she's like, oh, where's it at? I said, Iowa. <laughs> and if you've never been to Iowa, um, it, you know, Fort Dodge is a little different than Fort Lauderdale. When it's negative 20 degrees uh, on, on, you know, in the middle of winter, so... But the thing about Ragbri, it, it's just a legendary event that just celebrated 50 years this year. It's, some days we had 20,000, 30,000 people on the road. Uh, I did that event for 17 years and um, just had a wonderful time putting on just amazing friends. Grew, our kids grew up in Iowa. Uh, and then the last three years happened to have a great opportunity to come over here and, and start with El Tour de Tucson. So that was my progression from Florida to Iowa over to Tucson and, uh, you know, it's just pretty good for, uh, you know, just hitting all those different time zones pretty good and just different styles of cycling each and every way. So TJ, uh, just for a better understanding, put some years onto your adventures. When was that first time you did that Florida trip? When did you make it to 2000 people? When was the first sure. time you actually moved uh, to famous Iowa? Yeah, so it was probably about 93, 94, I started with with the Sunshine State Games and, and morphed into Bike Florida. Uh, it was 2003 that I moved to Iowa. And in two, 2019, uh, right around there, I left and I, I started my, my own event. But you know what? There's a little thing called the pandemic that if you're going to start a cycling event, you really shouldn't do it right before a pandemic hits. Uh, 
And so it just kind of blew that up. And, you know, at the time, El Torre de Tucson was saying, you know, they were kind of going through a transition. They were in kind of a, a rough patch. They had such a great tradition, but it was just some things that, that needed to, to change. And um, so a lot of people said, you know what, you should talk to TJ. He's a, he, he could be the, the right person to bring here to Tucson and take over. And so we had lots of conversations. I talked to a lot of different people, event directors like Todd Sato that was here doing the 24 hours in the old Playboy. Hey, what do you think of, of me coming over here? And there was enough people that said, you guys, this, this will be a good marriage. And, you know, three years later, I think I've done a pretty decent job. And um, I'm just grateful for the opportunity that the board gave me to, to come over here. And I knew, I mean, I'll put, Tucson is a cycling mecca up against. I don't care what those people in California think of their community. Road, gravel, Mount Lemon, recreational rides on the loop. This place has got it all. And how much passion that people have for cycling in this community. That's the reason why I said, you know what, I can come here and, and, and make a difference. And, you know, three years later, I'm just got all smiles. Well, besides putting on the event, you don't just put on an event. Um, you have the Prologue Camp, the Prologue Plus Camp, and the El Tour Bikes for Change. Tell us a little bit about that amazing program and how that has grown over the last three years since you've been here. Sure. Thank, thanks for bringing that up. It's about giving back. And a couple of years ago, Pam Alexander came, came up with this idea with Mari Holden, who was working with USA Cycling in their Let's Ride program. Let's give away some bikes to kids. And we said, all right, we'll get 50 bikes together. And uh, I don't think we had enough bikes. And, and literally, Pam went out and bought some more bikes for kids. And, you know, the smiles on these kids' faces, it was their first bike. So 50 bikes. And then afterwards, we're doing a little rebriefing. And if you ever met Pam, you know, that 50 is not going to cut it. So we said, hey, let's give away, say, you know, you know, 500 bikes. I'm like, what are you crazy? You know, we can't do that. So sure enough, we went well over 500 in year two. And again, there was so many kids that were still unserved. We're, we're trying to reach kids that, you know, are on the reservation or kids that are, are from foster homes and, and kids that really needed these bicycles. So year three threw a number out there um 3,000 bikes and the support um of just going to the different business leaders in this community say you know what we're trying to do this great thing for kids and so all of a sudden we called on some people in the industry and said hey can you give us these bikes at cost can you give us locks so huffy stepped up and said you know what 16 semi trucks of bikes came over from obviously came across the pond and came from California and shipped them over here. And we probably had 500 people that are in the cycling community with love and attention, put these bikes together, fitted helmets, make sure these kids had bikes. And every single one of them didn't pay a dime. You know, these were all kids in need from boys and girls clubs, um, different churches throughout our community. All of them came together on, on two different weekends. And the Davis Mothin Air Force Base, uh, the Pasquayaki uh, Reservation, all these kids got bikes. And right before the holidays, to have a new bike, you remember that first bike in your life. And it gives you freedom. And, and just to see the kids' faces as they walk up and got a bicycle is priceless. 
So, so how you um, organize it? You like call up 100 kids at a time and then they show up at uh, somewhere you meet at, at a parking lot? Or uh, how do I have to imagine the handover of these bikes? You know, the great thing, Jens, um, we worked, we've got a great partnership with the churches the year before. We tried to go through the school systems and they had kind of like Amy was saying, too many rules and regulation. We just said, we're going to do it on our own. So we work through uh, a lot of churches. The Serve Our City is a big week here in town. And then we connected with the Boys and Girls Club. One of our one of our uh, founding members or founding donors is Jim Click. I think you met him the other night. Uh, Jim's the biggest car dealer in town. He said, you know what? He's a big, big supporter of the Boys and Girls Club. Those are kids we know they're already vetted. They, they need a little something in their life. And so there was just thousands of kids in that program that were screaming, hey, we, we would love to work with you. And so instead of us trying to figure out who needs bikes, we went to the people that know who needs bikes. And so so just partnering with the Boys and Girls Club, we were able to go from 500 to 3,000 real quick. Well, over the last 40 years of the existence of El Toro Tucson, you guys have raised over $114 million for, for nonprofits and $5 million this year. Tell us how that works. So, again, it's more than a bike ride. And the people in this community, we have 70 different charities that, that ride a bell tour. They do fundraising for their, for their charity. So a team like Rotary is probably, they raise over like three or four million dollars each year sometimes. And they put back into those programs. So you'll see Boys and Girls Club, you'll see Big Brothers, Big Sisters, you'll see Mothers Against Drunk Driving. You see all these different charities and not necessarily about the bike. But we don't want them to go out, hey, let's go do a bike sale or a golf tournament. Ride in El Tour de Tucson, every dollar you raise stays in your program. You get great exposure. They ride in El Tour de Tucson. So, so those dollars stay in this community. So when you add it up over those 40 years to raise $114 million, it's one of the reasons that people really think El Tour de Tucson is such a special event for our community because of all the good it does. So how many starters are we expecting then in El Tour de Tucson? And, and what do you think? How many people in total, like with parents, they bring their kids and so on? It's got to be in the thousands, no? So we're, we're going to get pretty close to 10,000 people this year. Um, you know, when we first came on, they were in that 5,000 range. Um, so the thing about it is we've gone out to different events throughout the country and really talked to people say, Tucson's got a great thing going on. The neat thing about Tucson, we do this event in November. There's not a whole lot on the bike calendar in November. So if you're if you're in Wisconsin at the time, it's snowing. Okay, I lived in Iowa. It snows in November. It snows a lot. My daughter's in University of Maine. She's like, Dad, I got snow on my car. So people want to come to a place like this and ride their bike up Mount Lemon or, or ride in El Toro on the loop and then go have the greatest Mexican meal ever because this is the best American Mexican food in the entire world and have that great margarita and have a cerveza afterwards. And, you know, they want that experience and come back like, Jens, you were saying, you're going back with a sunburn, you know. So the, the nice thing about they're going to have an amazing bike ride. But you know what? When you when you look at their Instagram posts, they're going to say, "Wow, here's here's Bobby at, at this Mexican restaurant, and here's here's Jens having a having a margarita. Oh, oh, oh there's one bike picture. Uh, you know, so you have that total experience and, and just walking through the neighborhoods and and just seeing some of the history of this town. We want them to be immersed. It's a, it's a cycling destination, but 
my gosh, if you have loved ones that don't ride, you can get lost in this town and have a lot of fun. So uh, I know you, you, you folks say, you know, hey, Tucson, the, the weather here is fantastic. The riding's great. Boy, there's a lot of fun to have here. With 10,000 people taking the start, I mean, participation and pleasure rather than placing in pain seems to be the real kind of mantra here. But tell us a little bit how you've developed the, um, the program for adaptive athletes in this in, in your event here. Well, you know, and, and fortunately, we've got got a few of our friends here today in the in the room here that are that are listening in. Um, one of the things, if you don't know, the University of Arizona has got one of the top adaptive programs in the entire country, and there are so many riders that have given the opportunity. Um, and the nice thing about El Torre de Tucson is we really listen to their uh, their leadership and say, you know, how can we make this this ride more accessible or things like can we get them to the start line you know they've got um you know just different challenges than than you know someone that's that's riding a regular upright so if they're changing from their their wheelchair to the race bike or they're you know coming on their van all those accommodations we've got we've got an amazing program here at southern arizona adaptive sports mia hansen's in the room today who who really has that love and passion of making sure that her athletes are well you know thought of before the event instead of just hey just show up and fend for yourself we're going to have over 100 athletes that are that are in some form uh, a challenge athletes from wounded warrior program they picked up this year i know omeo wheelchairs has, has really reached out so we want to see you know some of these athletes come in and so in addition to the athletes that are just here from tucson more and more people from throughout the country are hearing hey this is a great opportunity to ride 100 miles 62 miles or 32 miles and they make those accommodations to make sure that we are you know thought of instead of just an afterthought and i i think we've seen the numbers grow i mean you guys have been riding for i mean we've talked at, at a at a banquet uh once or twice after you know some of them have done the 100 miles and i just i just stand back and say oh my gosh 100 miles um it just just floors me to to hear the great stories of of the teams that have ridden in El Torre de Tucson. So, and um, we believe you're about to extend this entire model to another event, right? Um, tour de Scottsdale, Tour of Scottsdale? Tour, Scott, tour de Scottsdale. Tour de Scottsdale, there you go. So, what's the future for that one? Maybe you fill us in a little bit about your ideas for that project. Sure. So, April 13th to... 2024 will be in Scottsdale, and if you don't know Scottsdale, from from Tucson is up in that Phoenix in the Valley area. Uh, beautiful resorts, uh, just amazing riding around the McDowell Mountains, and uh, they've had lots of off-road stuff up there. The Cactus Cup for many 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 years. If you've raced those before, um, but it's just a 100k race. I mean, the nice thing about making sure that we still have a road race. There's so many, uh, you know. I mean, like Amy was talking about the gravel movement there's so many you know gravel rides and and, and off-road stuff but how many road races are there left in the united states when you guys were growing up you had you had just tons to pick from and if you think about it i mean el Torre de tucson's the, the largest road cycling race in america i mean a lot of people don't call it a race they call it a ride but you know when you start that clock and then you say bang you know and and you finish and here's a medal and you're on the podium that's a race Okay. You call that a race, Bobby? Absolutely. Call that a race, Shans? Yes. All right. Absolutely. So, so they may call it a ride, but that's a race. All right. And so 
there's not enough of those anymore. I mean, we want to see people. When I'm watching the Tour de France and I'm listening to our buddies, you know, Bobke and, and, and Christian, you know, call these races and, and Phil, I'm like, why aren't the Americans up there? Why don't we see? And to see, you know, kids from Tucson, like like Matthew Riccatello, and, and we see Quinn Simmons on El Tour de Tucson, it's awesome to see that. But those guys need more opportunities to come ride here instead of always going over to Europe. So I don't want to see the American road race just go away. And it used to be a full calendar of road race. Now it's like, you know, how many? I mean, you can probably list the major ones on one hand. And um, I, I just think the entire movement of cycling really needs to take a look at that and say, what's going on? Because there's a lot of support for road cycling. And there's a lot of people that are out there. I mean, you, you've seen it in this community. Uh, let's not forget about road cycling. I know, you know, gravel sexy and all that. And it's the kind of, you know, come a long way in a long, short time. we got another great off-road race. Like I said, the 24-hour here. But let's not forget about how powerful the cycling. Because I'm pretty sure the largest race in the world is still the Tour de France, right? And that's I'm pretty sure that's a road race, right? Yes, sir. So let's not forget that those are road bikes. They're nothing against your gravel bikes or anything like that. But the biggest race in the world is still... And let's let's get those American. We used to have Americans that won this thing. So let's let's get back to that point where we are extremely competitive. And I love to see these young guys. And we're seeing more and more. I mean, I'm passionate about watching the tour and and seeing. It's not just about getting riders to that level. It's about getting people riding. And and if it's the worst rider in the world to the best rider in the world, as long as you're out enjoying the sport, I think that's really important. So what can we do are uh, yourself other race promoters to bring that level of cycling back up in the u.s because you're absolutely right when i was a junior uh even an amateur in, in into my pro days you could actually choose the races that you wanted to go to there were so many of them but like if you could just with a a magic wand uh do something what would be those real major changes that would promote and motivate more people like yourself to to get back into promoting road races well, I, I, I think it's an afterthought in the American media, first of all. I mean, if you watch the tour and you try to go to, say, ESPN or one of the, one of the sports apps, and you try to find out results of what happened at the tour, which is the biggest you know, race in the world, it's a struggle to even find. You know, it's paid in no one reads a newspaper anymore, but it's, it's you know, page 16 if it is. In Europe, it, it's obviously, you know, front of mind every day the tour's going on. When I, when I watch you know, uh, the, the, the grand welcome in Denmark and seeing, you know, a million people out there. It's like the Chiefs at the Super Bowl celebration. I mean, we're not going to get to that point anytime soon, but we got to get closer to that. Obviously, there was a, a pretty big trend. I mean, let's face it, the, the years that Lance won the Tour de France, there was a lot of interest of people that had no interest in cycling, knew what cycling was, and got probably introduced to cycling because... He was a larger-than-life figure. He's sitting on David Letterman at night, and, you know, um, I'm pretty sure our American cyclists aren't on talk shows at night because no one knows who they are. Now, I'm not saying we got to get to that point, but you know what? If we keep pushing it and getting big events in town and get more people riding, then people start start developing. You saw that in soccer. I mean, soccer's come how far in the United States in the last 20 years? Because those kids are playing soccer when they're, you know, my kids play soccer, everyone's kids play soccer here, and soccer is starting to get traction in the United States. But cycling is kind of, road cycling is 
kind of an afterthought. And so I, I think if, if people, you know, you got to support them. We've got tremendous community support in Tucson from, from city, county, state. Everyone backs this event because it's a huge economic impact on the community. But you know what? There's passionate people. There's CEOs that ride that say, you know what? We need to support El Tor de Tucson and make sure it's here for a long time. So if other places throughout the country can get that mentality, like, you know, we're just branching out to the next one, like a Scottsdale or other places. But boy, it would be nice to look at a calendar and say, here's 12 great races that I can do. Or if I'm not ready for race, you know, hey, I'm going to I'm going to do an eight hour century. But you know what? That's better than the last century I did. So let's not forget about, you know, making sure we back those things. Um, you know, the road races of that, that went away. Let's see, they don't have to be as big as, you know, Tour of California or anything like that, but events like Tour de Tucson, there's definitely a place for those, and we've got to make sure we support them. So now, <clears throat> what would it then, you just mentioned Tour of California, what would it, apart from a lot of money, what would it take to bring up another stage race, to bring up a new stage race in whatever, in Arizona or any other state, What do you think? What's the biggest obstacles there? Why doesn't it come back? That's a good question, Jens. You know, I've, I've, I've watched uh, Tour de Georgia go away. There was a, that race in Missouri yep. went away. Uh, the Pro Challenge up in, in Colorado. I mean, they had all the financial backing in the world. And where are they today? They're gone. You know, so I, I'm not sure that, that we, can, we can support a stage race without completely doing it differently. Um, I don't think it's, you know, those, those six, seven days of, of, of trying to do that. I mean, the cost to put them on is tremendous, obviously. Uh, the pro racers, you know, they, they want to make money. I mean, who doesn't? You know, they're pros. Um, so I, I don't know if that type of mentality, but you know what? There's other types of races like, you know, we're going to have the Olympics five hours away from here in what, just what, 2028. That's not a stage race. That's a one-day bang. I worked at the Atlanta Olympic Games. I worked in, with basketball at the time when I was, I was a young kid. I went out to Olympic cycling, and it was awesome. There's, like, all these people. I don't know if you guys were – I don't know. You're probably in that, about that age range that you might have been in Atlanta Games. But um, it was awesome. I mean, and none of those people really knew much about cycling. But the streets are lined 10 deep because it was the coolest thing to have Olympic cycling. So I'm sure when we have LA come up, it's going to be an awesome one day, you know, race that, that people can just really get excited about. And so why not leading up to that, have more one day or, or weekend type events? Because I think that's a possibility instead of those multi-day stage races, which are extremely, extremely hard to do. Well, I'll be honest with you, uh, the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles was the number one thing that got me into cycling. Alexi Graywall winning the, 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 the road race in front of Steve Bauer. Alexi Graywall lived 15, 20 minutes up the road from my hometown in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. And all of a sudden, Nelson Vales has a medal. He's, he's here. I mean, these guys were our heroes. And You know, getting to see these guys, Davis Finney, Ron Kiefel. We've had Ron Kiefel on the podcast already. It, it's the way that, that that generation motivated my generation. Hopefully my generation motivated these other kids. And, you know, we got, we got a Grand Tour winner from America again, Sepp Kuss. We got Jimmy Riccatello. We got Riley Sheehan. We've got, I mean, the list goes on and on. Matthew Riccatello. 
Matt, Matt, yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy uh, retired a while ago, but yeah, Matthew Riccatello, but Nielsen Paulus, um, Matteo Jorgensen. Uh, it, it's so exciting, but we, we really have to give them that, that opportunity that my generation had. But to go back to El Tor de Tucson, I know we're recording on Friday. The race is tomorrow. By the time this comes out, it'll be probably next week. But to our viewers and listeners, tell us a little bit more about what they can expect here between now and and the event. Sure. So we got three different uh, races that, that pretty much go. And, and some people, like I said, ride it as a ride. But the, the big race is 102 miles. We have our platinum division, which is about 400 people that I would say most of those 400 think they're going to have a chance to get on the podium. And only how many three end up on that podium. So uh, the interesting thing is, you know, when we took off last year, we had uh, no idea who was going to, you know, win. I looked at that front that front line and you see Bob Roll and George Hincappy and Christian Vanneville like lined up. And you know what? In the end, our, our top three people were uh, a kid, Sean Christian, who's a 20-year-old kid, beat out Damiano Canego, who won, what, the, the Euro... Uh, the Giro d'Italia Giro in 2013 or something. And, and he's in second place, and, and uh, another guy from Ireland in, in third place. I think uh, Cormac came in uh, third place last year. Um, so a 20-year-old kid beats, a, a, you know, one of the, the legend ride uh, champions. So um, every year is different. We've had people like Robbie Ventura. You know, you're, we saw Robbie the other night, who's, who's won a couple of L tours. Um, you know, you never know what goes on. But... But even like Quinn Simmons wrote it last year, who's defending national champs wearing the Stars and Stripes at the tour, which was really cool to see that. Um, you just never know on, on, on you know, ride day of, of who's going to come out on top. But the thing that's neat is, yes, that gun goes off and those people ride. But it's just as important as a person that rides that century in eight hours that they come and feel like a champ. And when they get that medal or that accomplishment, this is my first century. I remember my first century. I was like, wow, that was a major accomplishment. 100 miles. How, how cool is that? But then we also have 100K, our metric century and a half metric. Um, but our 100 miles, we're going to have probably about 3,500 people that are ride 100 miles. And, um, you know, that's saying probably one of the largest century rides, I would say, anywhere in the country. So um, just mention it anywhere in the country. Um, how many states or how many nationalities are represented? Do you have like you have that on top of your head? Sure, we've got all fifty states represented. And about really all fifty. Wow, yeah, about twenty different countries too. I, I just ran in. Uh, yeah, someone from Belgium was in, in the lobby the other day, not too far for, probably from from where you're from, Jens. Um, but. You know, when you look at it, it's not, we have a strong contingency. If you, if you look at the map where Tucson is, is, you know, you can hit a, a golf ball almost into Mexico from here. So we're really not that far. We've got a strong contingent of, of riders that come up from Mexico each and every year. But, you know, again, when it's, uh, if you're in Canada right now, it's, it's not very friendly weather-wise. So come down and ride your bike in Tucson and go back with the sunburn. It's okay. So 20, 20 plus. Well, I personally can't wait for this event tomorrow. Um, just to, to share my, my best memory from last year was we were getting into the final. It, was a, it wasn't Pistol Hill. It was kind of the other uphill uh, with about 30 miles to go or so. And the, the group exploded. And we're coming down the descent a little bit. And I realized there's uh, national team jerseys, American Stars and Stripe national team jerseys. 
and they were the development uh, female riders that made the front group. And that, when I saw that, I was just like, everybody got piped, and these three or four young ladies are here. And that was my best memory of El Tour Tucson last year, and I hope we have many, many more good memories this year. But TJ, it's been a blast. Thank you for having us here. Thank you for everything that you've done for, for Tucson, for the sport of cycling, for coming on Bobby and Jens. And uh, we'll see you on the start line tomorrow. Love it. Good, good luck on the ride. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thank you to Amy and TJ for being our guests. Thanks for listening, and please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Velo production in association with Shock Giraffe. This, this program was edited by Mark Payne. Remember to check out the video version of this podcast by heading to the Outside Watch YouTube channel. Get in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, Facebook. Just head to at Bobby and Jens. Give us a follow. This week, we want to, again, appreciate or say thank you to our live studio audience and to Mark, our producer, who's going to have a hard time putting this together. Thank you, Mark. Yeah.